Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. And Colleen, we're back at it in the book of Revelation as we march into 2024. Wow. Kind of seems <laughs> fitting, doesn't it? An it election does. <laughs> year, end of time. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, it, it is completely appropriate. <laughs> So our chapter this week is Revelation chapter 15, and we are getting ready to watch our God pour out His wrath, His final wrath on the earth in chapter 16. And there's this little interlude in 15 where we get to see the seven angels who will pour out the seven bulls, which are plagues. So my question to you as an Adventist Mm -hmm. What was your sense of the fairness of God's judgment? Because we are going to be dealing with the perspective of his people as he pours out his judgment. So what was your perspective as an Adventist? Well, let me see if I can collect my thoughts, because my Adventist thoughts about God's judgment were pretty passive in a way. I believed it was all about God is fair And Satan accused him of not being fair, Mm -hmm. and we're here doing our best to keep the law to prove that God is fair, and that His law is fair, Mm -hmm. and that if Jesus could come and keep the law, so could we, and then in that way, we're showing God is fair. And somehow, everything about God's judgment was about God being fair. And of course, there was the investigative judgment, which was supposedly going on now, And I knew that was eminently fair because it was all about whether I'd confessed my sins. And that was an objective reality that even though I couldn't remember, God probably could. And the fact that I couldn't remember probably meant that I wasn't going to remember all my sins to confess. And that would objectively mean that if I couldn't confess them, God would have to accuse me of them. But then, God being fair, I also had the competing notion in my head that if I did my best, God would do the rest. I'm not ever sure how those two went together. I think a lot of Adventists, especially from my generation, and possibly even later, held those competing thoughts. It was much more pleasant to think of the more modern and cheerful thought that if I do my best, God will do the rest. But I still felt like I was responsible for those individual sins. Now, as for God judging the world, I never really thought about it the way Revelation presents it. I always thought of God's judgment on the world being that last great burn, that Mm -hmm. lake of fire, where everything evil was destroyed, and where we would all live in bliss after that, if of course we made it. And because he's fair, I wasn't sure I would make it, but I would know it was fair because I wouldn't suffer long because, you know, I didn't do anything really bad, Mm -hmm. like commit genocide. So, you know, it would be a quick burn, Mm -hmm. but it would be fair. And I never thought about judgment in the way the Bible is talking about judgment. Mm -hmm. What about you? It's kind of a hard question to answer, isn't it? I probably should have Mm -hmm. chosen a different one. (laughs) You know, I think that as my view of God became more progressive, I began to drag his righteousness down to my level Mm -hmm. so that when I thought about him being fair, I thought about him being permissive. Yes, that's interesting. So when I would think about somebody who they knew not as much as I did, about the Bible or about God, but they knew some and they lived faithfully according to what they knew, you know, then God would be permissive and kind and judge them based on that. And so just like the book that we went through, what Seventh-day Adventists believe, Mm -hmm. I believed that each person would be judged only based on what they were convicted by. So you could have someone who's a Muslim, Mm -hmm. you could have someone in Hinduism, Mm -hmm. it didn't matter. If they lived faithfully according to the little bit of light that they had, whatever of it was true, he knew their heart and they would not deserve to burn forever or for any extended period of time. See, for me, I wasn't comforted by a quick burn. (laughs) A burn (laughs) is a burn and it all sounded awful to me. But, (laughs) But I had to figure out in my head how God could be loving and fair and hold people responsible who'd never heard the gospel. And so... 
I would do mental gymnastics to make his judgment and his righteousness come down to my level of giving people the benefit of the doubt, yes, yes, knowing yes. their heart, basing it on their motives and their intentions. And there wasn't this fixed set of truth that they had to believe right. so much. I don't know if that makes sense. It completely makes sense. And then when I read the book of Revelation, I realized it wasn't that fuzzy. <laughs> I, I was terrified by the end of it. I was certain that I was creating this kind of fluffy picture of God's judgment that just isn't reflected in the text. And I felt very much like I wasn't going to make it through. Wow. You know, I couldn't even figure out who, who the 12 tribes of Israel that were sealed were. Where did I go? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't fit in any of those tribes. So mm-hmm. I couldn't make sense of me getting the seal. And there's only 144,000. And it was terrifying to read God's wrath in that. Coming back to it now as a believer and reading through it, I never saw so many opportunities for unbelievers to come to faith in God during his outpoured wrath. Yeah, I had never seen that either, Nikki. I mean, even just the three angels' messages when the angel is flying mid-heaven for all people to hear and the angel is saying, worship God who created heaven and earth, they are still being called to worship, even in the face of you know, these other trumpets that had already happened. Right. So I see, even in the midst of his judgment, up until we get to chapter 16, I see his grace, even in the middle of it. And when you see that, and when you see how clearly he reveals himself to humanity and how often he calls humanity to faith, even in the midst of punishing them for their unbelief, Mm -hmm. I don't see his judgment as harsh or black and white and kind of rigid. I see an abundance of mercy and grace and a plea for them to come to him so that they're not victim of what's to happen next. That's so interesting, Nikki. And you know, as you're talking, I'm remembering a day in the mid-90s where I was sitting in church at Loma Linda University Church and Bill Loveless was the pastor and he was preaching. And I remember it really pretty vividly because I was sitting up on the platform in the orchestra and he was talking about how people are saved who've never heard the gospel. Now, that was like a Sabbath school class question. We always Mm -hmm. wondered about that as Adventists. Mm -hmm. What about the people that have never heard? Well, he had an explanation. I remember hearing it and I'm looking at it now and thinking, wow, what a twisting. He said... They're saved, too, because of Jesus. When Jesus died and shed his blood, it was for the sin of the world. So even the people out in those regions that have never heard of Jesus, they can be saved through their belief in, like you said, the light that they have, the sincerity that they have, because Jesus' blood takes care of their sins. And I remember thinking, wow, well, that's an interesting view. I mean, it was it was nicer than the historic Adventism I'd grown up in. Mm-hmm. But Nikki, it didn't answer all my questions, and it certainly doesn't fit with the Bible. Well, you know, when I first heard it, I didn't initially think it was very nice. You know what I thought? Well, how come he couldn't just leave me alone? How come he had to give me this much information? Yes. Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> now I'm in trouble. I've heard about the Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, I know. And you know, one of the biggest surprises, one of the biggest shifts in perspective that I had after I came out of Adventism and knew who Jesus really is, was realizing that I don't have to worry about those theoretical questions of the people in Timbuktu who've never heard, because God is responsible for revealing himself. Now, that question that Loveless was answering grows out of that Adventist perspective that Jesus won't come back until we've preached the gospel to the whole world. So, get busy, get busy, get ready, get ready. Take the gospel of the Adventist message to the world so Jesus can come back. Well, we all knew that was hopeless. Generation after generation dies and new generations are born. And we're all ashamed of the Adventist message as Adventists. We're not going to go charge a a church next door that we can see is doing really well on their own (laughs) and tell them you guys are wrong. That's right. We knew that. It was very guilt-producing. But when I realized that God's responsible for revealing himself, that he is sovereign, 
I never saw that those three angels are flying in the middle of heaven and that the whole world will see and hear them, at least hear the message. But I certainly never understood Romans 1, that everything that can be known about God, His divine nature, His power, can be known and seen through what has been made. I didn't understand that that means God reveals Himself, and as people respond to Him, He takes responsibility for revealing to them the truth about Jesus. Yeah. He does that. Well, even if we put that aside, what happens to the people who've never heard, if we put that question down, then I would say, you're asking the wrong question, Bill, because the Bible says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And that's the call of the church. And the true body of Christ is at work That's right, doing that. But they have this unique, overwhelming message, and now they have to deal with what's going to happen if we don't pull this off. Right. And they take that question and they start changing God. Yes, they do. I have just come to view Adventism as fan fiction. <laughs> they jump off of the Bible and they change the characters and they change the narrative and yeah. they add to it and they take away from it and they play with it and they have put it on a pedestal. Yeah. And it's not the original message, and it's not what God says. That's right. And they use all the normal Christian language, and they use passages from Scripture to support their ideas, and yet their ideas are they have to spread a heresy Mm -hmm. as the gospel and make the whole world believe the heresy. And I want to say, you're still in the domain of darkness. You're still being influenced, as you mentioned to me earlier, by the spirit of the age that's mentioned in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Everyone's born under the influence of the spirit of the air, the spirit of the age, the spirit that's in the children of disobedience. And if you're not teaching the true gospel, you're not teaching truth. Sincerity doesn't matter. I recently heard somebody who was struggling with the sense that Christians are judgmental. And I'm not saying that there aren't judgmental Christians in the world. Of course, there are. We're all human, right? But we have to be careful to separate the message of Scripture from our interactions with people, right? And Scripture, it does judge. It does. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, we read that Scripture judges the heart. Mm -hmm. And we see... Scripture transitions into God Himself in the person of Christ. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we have to give an account. We will give an account. Each one of us will give an account. And so when Christians say, read the Bible, mm-hmm. know who Jesus is, repent, place your trust in Him, they're not saying we're better than you because we've already done it. They're mm-hmm. saying, do it so you can be spared because you will have to give an account to Him. It's actually an act of love. It is. You know, Nikki... This whole thing of God judging the earth, and as you pointed out, in chapter 15 of Revelation, we're seeing the preamble to the last judgment of God being poured out on the earth. And it is the judgment of God. It is not the wrath of Satan that we're going to look at here. Mm -hmm. But when we realize that that's why Jesus came, He literally took the wrath of God in Himself to spare us. And if we don't trust Him, our sin remains on us. And if we trust Him, our sin is on Him. It was the ultimate act of love. It was the ultimate revelation of the grace of God. It's so horrifying to me when I hear people say, that's just divine child abuse. What father would do that to his son? No, the Trinity is one. Mm -hmm. And even though there are three persons in the Trinity, and this is a mystery that's not explained to us, but God is one. And when Jesus hung on that cross, it says in Colossians that God was in Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. God himself, the triune God, took our sin and experienced his own wrath against sin. It's the ultimate wrath. 
It's amazing. I can't explain it, but he's provided us a way out. And so when we walk into this judgment that we're going to start to see, we have a way to know we can be safe from that. And it's not about fair. As our Pastor Gary said, you think you want fair. No, you don't want fair. You want mercy. Yeah. And that's what God has offered to us. Should we read the chapter? It's short. It's only eight verses. Okay. So this is Revelation chapter 15, and I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who have seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Then I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who have overcome the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after these things I looked, and the sanctuary of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who have the seven plagues came out of the sanctuary clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Another sign in heaven. So in verse one, let's talk about what this sign was. What is the sign that John saw? He saw seven angels who have seven plagues. And they are the last plagues. And in these seven plagues, what is finished? The wrath of God is completed. You know, it was interesting when Pastor Gary talked about this, he made the point that the word finished here means basically the specific wrath of God that's going to be poured out, bringing the beast and the false prophet and Satan to judgment. Whereas the general wrath of God is never finished because he's eternal. So when we think of the lake of fire that will burn eternally, that's not going to finish. That's forever and ever. But this specific wrath of God that started when Jesus, the lamb, took the scroll and opened the seals will be completed in these bowls. The drama of the book of Revelation, in other words, will be completed. And what you just said is so important. I remember listening to Pastor Gary teach that about the general wrath of God and the fact that you can't think about sinning against a holy, eternal, almighty, righteous God and think you can ever reach the end of that. In fact, I listened to S. Lewis Johnson preach through this particular chapter, and he made that same point. He said, there is no end, there's no fulfilling the offense against an eternal, righteous, holy God. And that is why God sent his son. We have a way to be forgiven for our sin against a righteous God. We're not being punished as human beings for mistakes. And, mm-hmm. and I want to say a lot of people will look at sins they make and go, oh, I made a mistake. I made a mistake in cheating on my test. I just, oh, I made a mistake when I had an affair. I made a mistake. No, these are sins against a holy, righteous, eternal God. And that is eternal as well. So, either our eternal, righteous, holy God takes the responsibility for that sin and pays the price, and we receive His mercy and get brought to life in Him, or it remains on us. You know, I I love the fact that you use the word mistake. I think that we give ourselves that pass because we sense that in our nature, we can't not sin. And so we're at war with our own nature and we're constantly bumping up against it. Remember what it was like as an Adventist trying to do everything right so that you could continue to experience that fellowship with the spirit that you felt only came when you were walking rightly. And so we would make mistakes 
air quotes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Every time we bumped into that nature, and that's what our repentance is. That's what it is to hand over the responsibility to Christ is to acknowledge, I cannot do any better than this. I'm dead in my sin. My nature is fallen. Yeah. Only you can do this. My impulses to do good things and to help the poor and the needy are all coming from sinfulness. And they count for nothing if I haven't trusted Jesus. I can't get good. Yeah, and you will forever feel helpless with your sinning if you don't understand that Christ took care of it. When you place your trust in Him, He's taken care of it. And now you have a different relationship with sin and with reality and with truth. And you know, I like that you said we have a different relationship with sin, reality, and truth, because Adventists will talk about, oh, it's all about a relationship with Jesus. And yet they don't know what it means to trust him with their sin. They don't even understand that they're born dead in sin. So yes, I see that while we do have a different relationship with Jesus and the fact that we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, so we have a different citizenship, the thing that we deal with on this earth is our relationship to our flesh, Mm -hmm. our relationship to sin. And when we know Jesus, our relationship to sin is different. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I didn't understand as an Adventist, and I knew I was missing something, Nikki, didn't you? Yeah. I just knew I was missing something, but I didn't know what. I thought it was something in me that was just not able to be good. This day of the wrath of God that John is seeing symbolized here is about to be completed. And as the rest of the book of Revelation unfolds, where do we see this last wrath of God being outpoured? Where does it reach its culmination? What chapter? 19. Yeah. So, what we're going to see from here on out is the last great work of the wrath of God, the last destruction of evil, and the process of that and the progress of that as it concludes when the Lord Jesus comes and destroys his enemies in chapter 19. So, if John is seeing a sign in heaven and he's seeing the angels who are going to have the last plagues in their hands and will be given the permission to pour them out. When we see him seeing that, what is it then that John moves into in verse 2? Yeah, this is interesting. So he kind of moves away from what the angels have and are about to do, and he sees this scene in heaven. He says that he saw a sea of glass mixed with fire, And he saw those who had overcome the beast and his image and the number of his name. So these are martyrs. He saw them standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And he sees them singing a song, rejoicing. We've seen in previous places in Revelation, we saw a reference to the sea of glass. I remember in chapter 4, in the throne room of heaven, John sees a sea of glass before the throne. So, how is this sea of glass that he sees different and the same, and what does this signify to us? Well, we know that in this text that the sea of glass is mingled with fire. Which is a really interesting image. It really is. And Gary pointed out that in Scripture, fire indicates judgment. We saw in chapter four where John was standing in the throne room and there was a sea of glass before the throne of God. But there was no fire mixed with that sea of glass. No, there wasn't. That was a scene of pure rejoicing where the scroll with the seals was just going to be given to the lamb who would be able to open the scroll. He was the one who had the title deed to the earth. So that was a scene of rejoicing, of worship, of adoration. So now John is back in the throne room. He's seeing that same sea of glass. This time he sees fire mixed with it, indicating that the time of his judgment is here. Mm -hmm. It's going to be poured out. And what else does he see on the sea of glass? This time while he's in the throne room, he sees people standing on the sea of glass. He sees those who had overcome the beast in his image. What John sees here is not saying that these people who are standing on the sea of glass did not die. It says that they overcame the beast and his image. That means that they didn't fall 
to the beast's temptations and pressures. Mm -hmm. In whatever way, they overcame the beast by being loyal to Jesus. And here they are on the sea of glass, and almost certainly this is describing martyrs who have come out of the tribulation, who were killed by the beast, but they were not overcome by the beast. They're there with the Lord. (laughs) You know, this may or may not be important, but it was interesting to me when Gary was talking about the harps of God, he said that these harps are more like a a ukulele. He said it's the lyre. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. It's a little handheld thing. And we've all seen these pictured, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But he said it was the most common instrument of worship in Israel that's used in the Old Testament, with the exception of the trumpet. Mm -hmm. This particular kind of harp and the trumpet are the instruments of worship that are used throughout the Old Testament. And I think it's really interesting to remember, as I learned years ago in a women's Bible study, that in many ways, Revelation is the completion of the Old Testament. It is the completion of the prophecies that God gave for Israel. And I want to say, we look around the world today and we go, wait a minute, where is this Israel of God? If God is going to fulfill all his promises to Israel, what's going on with all the godlessness that we see around us in Israel and all the nations? And I want to say this, God's promises are what are certain. There is unfaithfulness, not only among the Gentiles, but among the Israelites. Mm -hmm. And we're finding that described here. And in fact, as we move into this next section, where we talk about the Song of Moses, we're going to see echoes back from the Torah, where God let Israel know that they would be performing abominations against him in their future. We're seeing that. Mm -hmm. That does not mean God will not keep his promises. So this is where I just was fascinated because we know when when Gary was teaching, he laid out the context really well. God is about to go and complete his wrath. The scrolls are about to be completed. And yet we have these saints standing on the sea of glass with ukuleles (laughs) and they are singing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. They're singing and they're proclaiming the righteousness of God even as he's prepared to go and pour out these seven bowls on earth. And this is after they have been killed by the beast, most likely. They've experienced the wrath of Satan, and they're proclaiming the righteousness of God. So, the words that we have here in verses 3 and 4, I find this quite interesting. In my Bible, in the LSB that I have, the song that they're singing on the sea of glass is in all caps. That means these phrases are quoted from the Old Testament. Now, I just think that's so interesting. This song of Moses that these saints on the sea of glass are singing is composed of phrases that are very old, that are from the history of the scriptures for Israel. So, for example, Verse 3 says, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. And then 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Nikki, what is one of the primary places that this particular song is drawing from. So when we read that this is the song of Moses and the song of the lamb, we immediately wonder what is the song of Moses. And this brings your mind back to Exodus 15, when they had just been delivered by God out of Egypt, Pharaoh and and his army has been destroyed in the sea. And Moses began to sing, Miriam joined and the other women and they had tambourines and it was a song of celebration of deliverance. And it was interesting in the word search presentation that Gary did, he pointed out that what is about to come are seven plagues. What Moses and his people had at that time been delivered from was out of Egypt, but also in the midst of God's judgment, they were delivered from his wrath. Yes. Plagues. And the plagues. Yes. Now, I thought it was interesting, too, that in Exodus 15, in the Song of Moses, it includes phrases such as, 
Yah, or God, the Lord, is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. And then this, Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he is cast into the sea. And the choicest of his officers are sunk in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. And it goes on. So they, on the banks of the Red Sea, just after having been delivered, they are singing praise to God, and Miriam and the women dance with tambourines, and they sing this song, and they thank God for delivering them from their enemies, from the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. But then Moses, later in his life, is given another song. Now, I found this really interesting, and I learned about this primarily from a sermon I listened to by S. Lewis Johnson. And he pointed out that in Deuteronomy 32, God gave Moses another song just before Moses died. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, it says that God gave the song to Moses and Joshua was with him. Now, Joshua was the successor to Moses. He's the one that led Israel into the promised land. And this is the song that God gave him about the future of Israel. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not going to quote it all, but in this song, God is prophesying and giving Moses the words of prophecy that tell about the eventuality of Israel's unfaithfulness and that God will punish his own people. It's not only the people that come against them that he will punish. He will punish the Israelites themselves for their unfaithfulness to him. He says in Deuteronomy 32, words such as this about Israel, they made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who brought you forth. And Yahweh saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And then down farther in chapter 32, towards the end of the chapter, he says, see now that I I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. O nations, cause his people to shout for joy, for he will avenge the blood of his slaves, and he will render vengeance on his adversaries, and he will atone for his land and his people. And then Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. Nikki, it's just astonishing to me that the Torah itself, Moses himself had words for Israel that declared God would punish the people who came against them, but he would also punish the Israelites themselves when they abandoned him. God is going to be just. And isn't it interesting in the passage you just read, it says that he will avenge the blood of his slaves. And here in Revelation verse 3, Moses is referred to as the slave of God. God's people are his slaves, his bondservants. Mm -hmm. Paul frequently used that image. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this also being the song of the Lamb. So when we look back at Exodus 15, when Miriam and the women are singing the song of Moses and rejoicing over God's victory over Egypt, we see that that particular song foreshadows in many ways the redemption 
that God's people will experience by the Lord Jesus. So in Exodus, the Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, the Exodus Moses style, is (laughs) celebrated by Moses and Miriam and the children of Israel. So now in Revelation 15, we see Moses and the Lamb of Revelation 15, the Lamb being the perfect Israelite. They are celebrating the redeeming victory carried out by the Son of God. So we see that here at the end of all things, as the very last outpouring of God's wrath is about to occur, we see those who have not been overcome by the beast standing on the sea of glass, singing in praise and worship the song of Moses and the Lamb, completing the foreshadowing of those very early victories of God over the enemies of his people during the Exodus. And we see them also glorifying God for his victory over his justice, which he's meeting out not only to the unbelievers of the Gentiles, but to the unbelievers of his own Jewish people. So all of that is going to be just And God himself is going to redeem those who trust and believe him. And that's what we see them rejoicing about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're saying that his ways are true and righteous, and he's about to go and punish the wicked. I remember when I left Adventism, um, an Adventist relative of mine said to me, he said, I would never worship your God. Your God is a monster who burns people. He referred to the God of the Bible as a monster. But those who know the God of the Bible know that his ways are righteous and true. Whether we like him or not, whether we understand them or not, we know he's greater than we are. And here they are singing, they're rejoicing, righteous and true are your ways, king of the nations. And they're marveling at the fact that there are some who wouldn't fear and glorify his name. Who will not, O Lord, fear and glorify your name? You alone are holy And they're proclaiming, they know that the nations are going to come and worship before him. And that will happen at the end of God's judgment. He will set up his kingdom and the nations will come and worship him. So it's also a song of faith. Nikki, I never, ever understood these words to mean exactly what they say in this way as an Adventist. I really metaphorized the stuff and thought, oh, you know, it's Bible talk. (laughs) It's, It's Bible talk because God's fair. Mm-hmm. And and he'll see my heart. And yes, he does see our hearts. But he also is just and merciful. And again, as Pastor Gary said, you think you want God to be fair. No, you need him to show you mercy. Because to be fair, none of us would survive. Because mm-hmm. all of us are born dead in sin. We have sinned against a holy, eternal, almighty, righteous God. And that is an eternal offense unless an eternal God, the Son, comes and takes it for us and we trust Him. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were at this point in the Word Search study, Gary raised the question that I think a lot of us have, how am I going to be happy in heaven when these people I love are not? They're not there. How will we know joy? How will we be happy? And we don't know how. We don't have the answer. It's not just, oh, I'm I'm holier than the next person because I've decided I'm going to be happy anyway. <laughs> no, if we're completely honest, we are going to be heartbroken over those who don't come to faith. But we believe the words of Scripture. And the words of Scripture say that when God pours out His wrath, His people will rejoice. They will rejoice in who he is Mm -hmm. and they will trust his righteousness and his goodness. And so we can know, we don't know how God's going to deal with our heart, but we know he's going to deal with us. He deals with his people and he sets us right. Yeah. Gary pointed out that the emphasis of heaven is what you are doing is absolutely right. What you are doing is absolutely righteous. And then we move in to what happens when these angels receive the bowls. So what does happen? He sees the sanctuary of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven, and it's opened up before him. 
this is a trigger point for most of us who have been Adventist because <laughs> Adventism tells us, see, 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 there's a real tabernacle. There's a, a physical building and the physical stone tablets are there and they are eternal and they are the source of judgment. We are all judged by the Ten Commandments. But that's not what this is saying. This is, as we know, a vision. John is seeing it. The phrase, the tent of testimony, refers to the two stone tablets. The testimony is a reference to those tablets. Now, what's a testimony? It's a statement of truth. This is God's truth. These two tablets were God's testimony to Israel. He actually placed the very words of the Old Covenant on these two stones tablets of stone. And we learn that for sure in Exodus 34, verses 27 and 28. The Ten Commandments were the actual words of the covenant. So, they were God's testimony, and they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Now, in Israel, these two stone tablets, the testimony, they were not primarily a list of behaviors required for Israel to keep in order to be saved, but they were the very words of God's promises. Now, lest you doubt me, I'm going to read Exodus 34, 27 and 28. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have cut a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with Yahweh 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So, this is what essentially John sees in heaven. He sees into the very presence of God, which is what the Holy of Holies represented on earth. Remember, it was in the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory would reside in the tent of Israel. Mm -hmm. So, John is seeing into the very presence of God. And we know this can't be a physical building because, and here's where we have to unpack our Adventism, God is not physical. Jesus told us in John 4.24, when he told the woman at the well, God is spirit. God who is spirit is not contained in a physical building. At the heaven where God is, is not the heaven we see where the stars are. This is a spiritual heaven where God is. It is not physical. He is spirit, and where he lives cannot be a physical building. So, the interesting thing was that after Gary talked through this about the tabernacle not being physical, I actually asked him a question about that because I know our Adventist trigger. I'm going to read a summation of what Gary essentially said in answer, and it was very helpful to me. He said, when we talk about heaven as the abode of God, we're not talking about the physical heaven he created, but the immaterial heaven created by God who does not have a physical form and who has created a spiritual universe. Now, think about that. We didn't even think about heaven that way as Adventists, a spiritual universe. And then Gary said, the only way we can comprehend this idea is by using the physical shadow of a tabernacle to represent it. Heaven isn't physical. Now, to be sure, the new heaven and the new earth that we'll see at the end of Revelation will be physical because we will be. We will be glorified physical beings. But Now, when we die and go to be with Jesus, we don't go to a physical heaven. The idea that there are physical tablets and a physical temple in heaven, that is a misunderstanding of the fact that these things are shadows. It's the opposite of how we understand shadows on earth. On on earth, a shadow is an immaterial representation of where something is blocking the light. In the Bible, the shadows are physical things. And they're foreshadowing spiritual realities. This shadow is the only way we can conceptualize the idea of God's presence and his eternal word and his faithfulness to his word. So if we're being naive, we read all of these things as physical. Oh, yes, the temple was opened and there are the stone tablets. He says it's important to understand that the Bible tells us very little about the presence of heaven. 
We know we go to be with him when we die. We know we will rest from our labors. But here, our ultimate destiny is the new heavens and the new earth in a physical state with access to the presence of God. So what John is seeing here is a shadow of reality, and he is seeing the presence of God where his covenant faithfulness is kept and recorded. Those stone tablets were a representation of God's words to Israel and of his faithfulness and of his covenant with them. And he is now carrying out the terms of the covenant. He's going to pour out judgment on those who have been unfaithful, but he will also keep his covenant and bless those who are faithful. And this is the shadow that we see when this tabernacle is opened. So John sees the seven angels who have the seven plagues come out of the sanctuary and their clothes in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests are golden sashes. And Gary pointed out that their garments indicate that they're acting as priests and they're doing this in the presence of God. And he talked about the bulls. Mm -hmm. He talked about them being shallow saucers. And he said that bulls were used to offer incense in the holy place. And they were also used to pour out libations at the altar for drink offerings and to discard the ashes. But here we see them filled up with the wrath of God. And then one of the four living creatures gave these bowls to the seven angels. And it's interesting the way that that God is described here. It says, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And that tag on there, who lives forever and ever, takes me back to what you were saying earlier when you said that when we sin against a holy eternal God, that sin stands forever unless it's on our eternal sacrifice in Christ. Yeah. So this description of the tabernacle and even of the angels dressed as priests with golden sashes, priests of God himself, echoes the description of the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. And if we remember, after each of them put together the tabernacle, Moses, and the temple, Solomon, and prayed for the dedication of the temple, the presence of God came and indwelt it. Here, we see something that we don't see in any previous place in the Old Testament where the tabernacle is mentioned. And in verse 8, it says, The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And like I mentioned, we saw that when the Shekinah glory came in Israel and in Jerusalem when the temple was built. But here there is something different. It ends by saying, no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The temple is essentially closed until the judgment is completed. God is not going to be disturbed at this point until all the judgment has been poured out. All of the times of intercession and opportunity at this point have ended. Now, in chapter 14, we saw the three angels calling out with that last message for the world. There are no angels like that coming now. Now we see the temple of God filled with the smoke of His glory, and no one can enter that sanctuary. No intercession is going to go on until the judgment is done. The bowls will be poured out, the time of judgment has come, and from here to the end of the description of this judgment in chapter 19. There will be no break. There are no interludes. It's just now showing the very final events as they take place at the very end of the tribulation. God's judgment will fall on the world. And whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile, if they have not trusted God, if they have not believed the Son, God's judgment will fall on them. But we also know from the future chapters, from the end of chapter 19, that God will save a remnant of his people. And we see that he has already saved saints out of the tribulation who were not overcome by the beast. So this is not like an inevitable judgment that's going to come and too bad for you if you're on the earth when it happens because it's going to kill you. No. 
only those who have not trusted the Lord God and his provision in the Son will receive the wrath of God. And as we end this chapter, I have to say again, this is the time, this is the day of salvation. If you have not trusted the Son, if you have not trusted the mercy of God, which he gave to us in his unbelievable love and compassion when he sent his son to take his own wrath as he hung on the cross. If you have not trusted him with your by nature dead in sin self and all of the things that you have done against our holy, righteous, triune, eternal God, this is the day. Come to his cross. See Jesus hanging there, taking the wrath of God. And as he dies, bearing our sins, bearing your sins, and is buried, and see him rise on the third day, as scripture said he would, because his sacrifice is sufficient to pay for all our sin. Trust him today, and he will save you. His mercy is for you. He will give you a new heart. He will give you his spirit. He will seal you against the evil and against the wiles of the beast and the Antichrist and the false prophet. He will save you, and you can know that your salvation is secure. And no matter what happens as his wrath is poured out on the world, as the world comes to an end as we know it, You are safe in Jesus, no matter what happens. Trust Him today. And join us next week as we continue our walk through Revelation. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.